You know you don't have to stop in my account. It's fun to watch. Thank you. Can I pray with you? Father, I know your heart is made glad, if that's possible to make you glad, perhaps to cause you joy over what you hear in this facility. That we would take this time and set it aside in the midst of our week and lift up our voices in song to you. I know that resonates with you. Father, I I know that you take joy in the chatter in the classrooms downstairs right now among the children, among the adults who are in classes, and the souls represented in this auditorium. Father, we come before you as individuals who are trying to set aside the pace we've lived this last week at, knowing that nothing has caught you by surprise, all the things that we encountered that kind of set us off kilter, was not a surprise to you. And the things that we'll take on this week will not be a surprise to you as well. But in many cases, they will be to us. So Father, I ask right now for the sake of this body who call themselves a biblical community, that you would cause us to bring our hearts and our minds, our thoughts in tune with yours. You'll take us to a place where we're ready to be instructed by You. You said that when You sent the Holy Spirit, that You sent Him not only as a comforter, but as a teacher as well. So God, I ask that Your Spirit would teach through me and that each of us as students would be ready to hear what You have to say to us. Thank You, Father, for this time. We ask for Your blessing on it. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. If you're new to New Hope, uh, you may not be aware, or perhaps you've been gone a while, that we've been working through the book of John. Uh, we got 27 weeks into it, and then we stopped for Christmas, and we knew that Christmas would take us off, and then I had this trip to Africa that I made, and then uh, decided to jump back into it here in the month of February. But it took us 27 weeks to get to the chapter 8, so warning for you, okay? There's 20 chapters in the book of John. When I taught the book of Revelation here, it took 43 weeks, and I thought that was a new record. So this one's going to go beyond that, I think, but it's worth taking our time going piece by piece with. We've called this study in the book of John the portrait. You see this uh, the artwork that's done here and up on the screen. Um, That's that's phase two. Um, Tim Bepler, one of the graphic artists that happens to attend here at New Hope, came up with this artwork for us, and this this represents images of the sun. Because in chapters 1 through 8, what we saw were uh, Jesus revealing to us what God looks like. Uh, Scripture says that Jesus explained Him. And then in chapters 9 through 20, we find the last six months of Jesus' life. And it's compressed into this very short span of time, all this activity of Jesus on planet Earth. The last six months leading up to His crucifixion from chapter 9 to chapter 20, and it's a very violent section of Scripture. We find this portion that we're starting out with this morning to set the stage for why the violence erupted around Jesus. You'll understand more of that as time unfolds, 
But what I'm actually doing in, in this story of the person who was born blind, who was a beggar, is we're going to take on part one this morning and part two next week because there's several things going on that help feed each other. I want to set you up well to understand that. The reason we're calling this the portrait is because of what Scripture says in John 1.18. You'll see this on the screen. It literally says this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, meaning Jesus, He has explained Him. So we understand that Jesus can explain God because He is God. So He can explain God to us. The word that's used there, the word explained, is this word exgekomai. And it literally means to unfold. So as you think of like receiving a gift on your birthday or at Christmas time and you unpack that present, Jesus unpacks or unfolds God the Father. None of us have ever seen God the Father. Jesus is the only one because Jesus is God. And so He can explain Him to us. So we've called this the portrait because we see Jesus making these brush strokes on an empty canvas explaining what God the Father looks like. By the end of John chapter 20, we'll have a complete portrait of what God looks like according to how Jesus explained Him. So I encourage you with the same thing this morning on week 28 that I did on week 1, which is this. Use your imagination as we go through this text because John is a portrait painter with words. He captures vivid imagery as he explains who Jesus was, and what Jesus did. One thing we need to know for sure is that Jesus is God. We want to make that very clear. Jesus did not have a start time. And I have to surprisingly, you may be surprised by this, explain that to many people when I have conversations with them, that Jesus did not have a start to date. Jesus has always existed. His incarnation was at His birth. But because Jesus is God, there is no time when He began. There is a time when the universe did not exist. There has never been a time when God did not exist, especially as Jesus. He's existing from all eternity in times past. So as we approach this text this morning, we understand that we're re-entering this worshipfully and humbly and awestruck that this one that we see at the wedding in Cana making water into wine, the one that we see standing in a boat, the one we see walking on the beach, is both your Maker and your Redeemer. And that's awesome, church. The God who created you also redeems you. So He alone can paint God, the Father, before our eyes and help us understand Him. So if you will join me this morning in John chapter 9 and verse 1, we come to one of my most favorite stories in all of the New Testament, and it's all about Jesus engaging with an individual who was born blind. John chapter 9 and verse 1. If you're new here, you're going to find Bibles in the pew racks there in front of you. Those are there not only for your use this morning, but if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those with you when you leave today. Our gift to you, we want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. But you can follow along with that this morning or up on the screen. The passages will be up there as well. John chapter 9 and verse 1 starts off this way. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Right away we see that God is not so preoccupied with getting to the temple that he ignores the needs of somebody who has a great disaster in their life. He's not ignoring the needs. And note this church, 
The Savior saw the man. The man did not see the Savior. He didn't even cry out to him. He had no capacity to see. He didn't even know that God was right there in his midst. Now, beggars commonly, when they sat outside the temple, they could hear the footfalls, someone walking by, and they'd begin crying out, saying, please help me, have mercy upon me. Well, we don't even see that in the text. He didn't even not know that God was there. He didn't even know enough to cry out. God reached out to him in the same way that he reaches out to us. So the Lord takes the initiative. Now, we're going to talk in just a minute about what this means to be blind from birth. I talked to one of the eye doctors here in the church this week just so I could understand the pathway to vision, especially this issue of being blind from birth. And we'll get into the physiology in just a minute. But before we get there, let's talk about what we do know for sure about this setting. The image that we have in our mind is of this pool that Jesus is about to send him to to wash his eyes in. And the pool is called the Pool of Siloam. You can still see this today. Archaeologists have discovered this in Jerusalem. This is the literal pool. Some of you have actually been there and touched the water there and seen it. This is the place where Jesus sent him. It sits at the end of the Hezekiah Tunnel. It was dug for the purposes of protecting Jerusalem in the midst of an onslaught of another army so that they would always have fresh water within the walls of the city. So this place you can actually still go to today, and we understand that this situation that we're about to read about took place in Jerusalem, most likely right near the temple, because that's where beggars always located themselves. People are coming into church, they're much more compassionate. And the same thing was true in the first century. So people who were in great need planted themselves outside the temple, and that's where they would ask for help, because they found individuals to be much more compassionate toward them. In this era, at this period of time, an uncared-for individual who was born blind or injured blind was reduced to begging. That's how they survived. They didn't have any other option. Blindness was a common occurrence in the first century, uh, many times through infection and through injury. It was less common to be born blind, much like today. It's not common to be born blind, but it did happen. And one of the things the individuals in the first century were told they should be on the watch out for, the lookout for, is the Messiah, when he arrived, would have the capacity to restore eyesight to individuals who were born blind. Matter of fact, that comes from the Old Testament. Isaiah 42.6 says this, As a light to the nation, speaking of the Messiah, when he comes, as a light to the nation, to open blind eyes. Talking about physically, literally blind individuals. And spiritually blind. So they knew they should be on the lookout for that. And you're going to see next week as this unfolds, they understood this is an extraordinary occurrence what is taking place here. So that you understand we're literally talking about a person who's physically blind. The word blepo is used. And this word blepo in the Greek language literally is talking about eyesight. Not just spiritual sight, but eyesight. This man has never seen what you have seen. He's been cut off from everything that you take in every day. He lives in a world of utter blackness, and he's been resigned to begging. And a person like this needs more than just brighter light in the room. They need more than just eyeglasses or an ointment on their eyes. None of these will reach the root of the trouble. They need something much greater than that because they're suffering a physical ailment. Now understand this as we move forward. Had Adam and Eve never disobeyed God and never committed the first sin, the family tree would not be suffering physical ailments like we do today. 
we would still be dealing with bodies that God created as perfect. But because of that first sin, not only did sin enter the world and the blackness that came with it, but the fall of man physically entered the world at that time. We began to degenerate as a result of sin entering the world. And this man is suffering the byproduct of that. He's dealing with the byproduct of the original sin. Now this is a great picture as we move forward that not only is the natural man born into physical blindness, like in his case, but we are all born into spiritual blindness. Every one of us enter the world with dark eyes and we need a Redeemer. There's a capacity missing in us at birth to be able to recognize God. And if it were not for God reaching out to us, we would remain in our blindness. But God says He extended the invitation. So there's a capacity missing in every human being at birth. Psalm 51.5 says this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So every person who's ever been born has been born into sin. We were shaped in iniquity. Man needs a Savior from the moment of the first breath. Man needs a Savior from the moment he's conceived in the womb because we're conceived in iniquity. This is what Scripture says about us in Ephesians 4.18. We're we're darkened in our own understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. So our understanding is dark and our heart is blind. And because of this, we can't even see our own condition. We're a perfect picture of this blind beggar. Utter helplessness, the object of helplessness. And mankind can't even reach out and help this individual. He's completely beyond the reach of man. Blind from birth. So, verse 2, the disciples ask a question that poses a theological problem. Here's the the problem. Verse 2, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, first of all, you want to ask yourself, well, how did the disciples know that he was born blind? They're just walking along with Jesus outside the temple. How could they possibly know that? Well, obviously, he's a common figure in the area of the temple. He's in his 30s, as you're going to see next week. He's probably been there for years, and his reputation has preceded him. So they've come to a conclusion They've come to a conclusion that he sinned or his parents sinned because in the first century there was a common belief that individuals' personal sin would result in some type of catastrophe in their life. I'm really glad they asked this question because for one thing, what it tells me is they think just like we think today. Even though 2,000 years have gone by, they're looking at the situation saying, whoa, what did he do to tick off God? How could this possibly have happened? Or what did his parents do? So his, his condition is creating a theological dilemma for them. So they're submitting this question because it's an extremely difficult situation. Why is there suffering in the world? Now, the disciples' reasoning is based on false premise. Their reasoning is that either he sinned or his parents sinned. And here's the false premise. It was common in the first century that there was this doctrine that was taught that individuals who were conceived in the womb could actually be paying the price for what they did in a previous lifetime. Reincarnation is not new to your generation. I don't know if you knew that. 
It actually started with the Babylonians. They passed it on to the Persians. They passed it on to the Greeks. The Greeks influenced the Gnostics, and the Gnostics influenced the Jews. And there was this conception in their mind that individuals, if they didn't live well enough in their first life, would reappear again in another form, and then they could live a little bit better and perhaps earn their way into perfection. Well, that smacks of the original sin, doesn't it? When Satan came to Eve and said, you can be as God, Eve. You can be as God. Well, that's what reincarnation is, that you can earn your way in. And that thought influenced these individuals at this period of time. So they're, they're asking this question because they're thinking he either committed a previous sin in a previous life or in his mother's womb he was guilty of it or his parents did something. Now we understand that suffering, all suffering on planet earth is ultimately the result of the original sin of Adam's rebellion against God because we physically began to degenerate at that time. And we won't have perfect bodies again until Christ returns and set things right. And there is examples in Scripture of individuals suffering some type of physical ailment because of their sin. I'll give you an example. Miriam, Moses' sister. Moses was put in a position of power. Miriam was supposed to be subject to him. She rebelled against him and his authority that God had given to him. And as a result, God gave her leprosy. Scripture literally says that. And she repented, and God removed the leprosy from her. So we see examples in some cases where individuals get a literal physical ailment because of their rebellious lifestyle. And we see children today who suffer the consequences of their parents' choices. Prime example, babies who are born to crack parents. You have a crack mama, you have a crack baby. And I saw plenty of those when I was working at Youth Haven over the years. Those babies that are born to crack addicts have a certain physiological problem the rest of their life. And we see that could also be an example, but the concept that a child is punished for the sins of his own parents is a concept that's foreign to Scripture. Here's an example of that, Deuteronomy 24.16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, all that aside, all those issues aside, where the disciples are caught up in this issue of who sinned and who didn't sin, there's an alternative to this, but they never venture to present it. So Jesus presents it for them. There's an alternative to the issue that's going on. I want you to note before we move forward what's going on here. The disciples are caught up in philosophizing, in theorizing, as opposed to dealing out mercy. They're looking at this man as an object for a subject of theological discussion. Now, it's great to have theological discussions, but when it comes at the expense of advancing the gospel, of sharing the good news with people who are living in darkness, that's where the theological discussions have to stop and you start living out the word. That's why James 2 is written very specifically, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word also. Now, Jesus recognizes what's going on here, so he responds to them. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might be displayed in him. So in the midst of this seeming tragedy, God has a purpose. The glory of God is about to be revealed through this individual's life. Uh, we'll be very clear on this. God, because he controls everything, Nothing catches him by surprise. 
He certainly is aware of this individual who has suffered being born blind. Go with me to the screen because I want you to see this passage in which God engaged in a discussion with Moses. Moses is standing before God, the burning bush, and he says, God, I, I cannot go to Pharaoh and argue on your behalf and, and free the children of Israel. I have a mouth that doesn't work well. And God had a response for Moses, didn't he? Exodus 4, 11, The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And we understand that God controls all those circumstances. So what Jesus is saying, He's totally rejecting the thought that He sinned in a previous life or that His parents' sin was the responsibility of this. He's simply saying this, the blindness offers an opportunity to show God's power here on earth. And I'm going to use it so that I can reveal who God is to you. I'm going to put God on display. So many individuals, especially high school students, have engaged with me in a conversation about this issue over the years. I can't begin to tell you, but it typically sounds like this. Mark, if God's all-knowing and all-powerful, why in the world did He even create Adam in the first place if He knew Adam was going to sin and fall? Why even let that play out? And intrinsic within that question is a misunderstanding. We seem to believe that God has a higher elevation of justice and mercy than He does for His own glory and His own power. God is equally distributed in His attributes. He's as equally as just as He is merciful. He's as equally full of love as He is compassion. They all are on the same plane. And so we fail to understand our God really desires to be known That's why He sent the Son to redeem us and pull us back so that we would know God the Father. That's why Jesus has explained Him, John 1.18. So because we fail to understand that, we can't quite grasp why would God allow this to happen to that individual? That the works of God might be displayed. Let me give you this word that Jesus used because it's a word that plays over into the English language today. Phanuro. This Greek word is still used by us today, and I'll explain to you how, but look at the definition for it. To render apparent, to make manifest. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, I'm going to put God on display for you. We use this word, fanaru, in the English language today when we say the word fan. I'm a fan of the Detroit Lions. Okay, I'm a fan of Michigan State University. Okay, we begin exalting that individual or that place to the degree that we draw attention to it. All right? That's the root word here in this Greek language, phanaru, meaning I'm going to put God on display. His power is going to be made known through what's going on here. So what we see is the disciples' focus is backwards. They're completely looking at how did this happen? Why did this happen? What's going on here? It's amazing that this one was born blind. But Jesus' concern is forward. They're thinking backward. Jesus is thinking forward. How can I make God on display? Make Him known to you. So understand, church, if you're facing personally a a suffering of some consequence in your life, some measure beyond what you thought you could ever possibly deal with, Maybe God has brought something into your world that 
you just never expected would be so hard. Understand this. Your God has a purpose. Nothing catches him by surprise. God will work through it. And the purpose can be revealed in your weakness. That's why Paul wrote, in my weakness, he is made strong. Uh, It may not be for a long period of time that you discover why you're going through the journey you're going through. This individual was in his 30s when Jesus restored his sight. 30 years he's dealing with this. So it may be a long period of time. With all that in mind, move forward with me to verse 4. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The we, if you don't mind circling in your Bible, is you. We, He's speaking to His disciples, His followers. Literally in the context of this verse, He's talking to those 12 that are with Him. But He's talking to all of us. And there's a sense of urgency here. As long as it is day conveys a sense of urgency. Why? Because you've got to make the most of your time. Ephesians 5.16 says this, you live in an evil time. Literally, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so Jesus refers to the night. What's he talking about? The night is coming, meaning his crucifixion. It's only six months away. And when his crucifixion comes, the light is extinguished. Jesus is the light of the world. Then he's resurrected. Then he's taken away. But God promised that the Comforter would come. And he said, when the Comforter comes, you become the light of the world. Jesus is gone. You are now the light. Literally, Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When you read that, you don't see it say, verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good theology. Okay? Now, theology is important. I love theology. All right? I'm sure you caught on to that by now. But not to the degree that it blocks out your good works. Because that's what draws people outside the kingdom into the kingdom. Here's a very practical explanation for you of that in an event that happened this week. Um, Several individuals who sit on the uh, compassionate care team, uh, John referred to it earlier as the Benevolence Fund. Uh, John Palmer's on that, and uh, Vicki Palmer and um, Gary Post were in a conversation talking about how can we distribute some of the funds that are in the compassionate care account We want to get it out and disperse it. We use it in the church to help individuals who have great needs. But how do we become an impact to the community around us? So the thought was, Gary should go down to the pharmacy on the corner of Hazlitt Road and Marsh, uh, the Rite Aid, and talk to the pharmacist about individuals who cannot afford to pay their prescription costs if they've got a copay. So Gary goes down to the pharmacy, he's standing in line waiting to talk to the pharmacist, and God's timing is just amazing. There's an elderly lady standing in front of him, and the pharmacist hands her her prescription and says, your copay is $7.40. And she pushes it back across the counter and said, I I don't have it. I'll have to come back another time. Gary says, whoa, wait, I can help with that. That's why I'm here. I'm from New Hope. I'm one of the pastors there. We have a compassionate care fund. Can I pay for that for you? Of course, she's filled with joy, and the pharmacist hears this story, 
And after Gary finishes doing that transaction with her, he explains to the pharmacist why he's there. And he said, um, I know there's individuals in Meridian Township who cannot pay for their copay. And here's what we've decided to do. And he explained it to him about the Compassionate Care Fund. And he said, do you have individuals like that on a regular basis? The pharmacist said, I just had one 20 minutes ago, let alone this one lady in the line. Can I call the one while you're right here? So he called this other elderly lady up and said, um, there's an individual here who would like to pay for your prescription. So you can get your prescription. Come on down to the store. She said, can I talk to him? She begins crying on the phone. Her copay was $12.70. And she couldn't pay it. Gary's talking to her on the phone and she said, New Hope is my church. That's where I go. Is God's timing amazing or what? That's your God. Letting your works be seen. Why? So that they may glorify your Father in heaven. That's putting the boots on the ground, church. Carrying out what we say we believe. So Jesus understands where the disciples are at and what they're thinking. And what He's about to do is this huge illustration. Not only of the great miracle of restoring this eyesight, but He's about to see a soul that was distant from God be saved as you see the story unfold. Go with me to verse 6. When He had said this, He spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied clay to His eyes. I'm when I'm a teenager and I'm reading that when I was in church as a kid growing up and going, Gross! Who wants spit put on their face, let alone spit made into clay and smeared over their eyes? But this passage really deserves our close attention because there's something extraordinary going on here. And it's profoundly significant. And I'd never seen it in my entire life until these last two weeks. As I'm studying this passage, and I, I looked at it closely and I thought, oh my goodness, I have never seen this before. Why did Jesus do it this way? I think there's two purposes very specifically. I put it in your notes this morning. And the first one we're going to get to in a minute, testing the faith of the blind beggar. But the second one was really significant to me. Because Jesus already said in verse 3, He's going to put the power of God on display. Fanaru. Everybody's going to know that God is being exalted as a result of what's going on here. So I started looking at that and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is Genesis 2. Genesis 2.7 literally says that God took the clay of the ground, the dust of the earth, and He formed man from the earth. And He shaped man and made him a living being and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I'm looking at this thinking, the Creator of the universe is creating eyesight for this individual. A man blind from birth. And I didn't really understand it or put the pieces together until I called the eye doctor here in the church and asked him to explain to me what's going on when someone is born blind. And believe me, this is not from my area of expertise. I'm reiterating to you what he explained to me in very rudimentary forms. The pathway of vision and the way that it takes place. Our eyes, we understand, our eyeballs contain the lenses like the camera lens. And through the lenses of our eyes pass the images that we see. That is transferred to a million neurons in the back of each of your eyeballs, which work like telephone lines going to the back of your brain, transmitting the images that are being taken in through your eyeballs. So your eyeballs are just the camera lens 
The brain is what's processing the information. What's very significant about this is that when we're born, we're born with about 2,200 vision. We can't see all that clearly. We can distinguish shapes and we can distinguish light, but we can't necessarily define images. It develops over a period of time. And the brain and the eyeballs begin to communicate with each other at birth. And it's a window of time that that takes place in. And the window eventually closes. So this is the way that this uh, eye doctor explained it to me. If someone is born with cataracts at birth and they're blind, and they age to the age of 20 years, and a surgeon says to them, I can remove the cataracts from your eyes, they still will be blind because the window has closed. The brain no longer had the capacity to take in the information. By the age of 12, your greatest eyesight has already been achieved. So for this individual in his 30s, the window has closed. There is no capacity. Even though there's eyeballs in his skull, he can't take in the information. So all the components of the visual system need to develop instantaneously, immediately for healing to take place. So as I'm looking at this passage, I'm seeing God the Creator who formed the dust to the ground and breathed into man the breath of life smearing dirt on the eyes of this individual. And I'm sure it got into the tear ducts and probably made his eyes wince a little bit. And Jesus said, go to the pool and wash your eyes out. And you understand, church, that the clay, while an irritation to his eyes, if it got in the tear ducts, is also the agent which encouraged the man to obey God. The very thing that was an irritation to his face, a foreign object, is the thing that caused him to obey. So you can compare this irritation to the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing you into conformity with God's activity in your life. And what appears to be the source of irritation in your life is actually the thing that's bringing you closer and closer to seeing God. So that suffering that may have entered your life may be the very thing that drives you to your knees to bring you closer and closer to God. Go with me to verse 7. Jesus speaking again, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. The simple elegance of Scripture. doesn't say that the angels sang. There were no fireworks going off. He came back seeing. Simple obedience. He didn't stop to reason. He didn't stop to ask questions. He did exactly what was told him. And his response, and see this very clearly, his response to God's activity in his life, someone he had never encountered before that morning, his response to God's activity in life, combined with God's power, brought him into a whole new world that he never expected to anticipate before. Someone who's sitting and begging for a cup of coins has his eyes given to him. That's your God at work. So this individual is a representative for each of us. He's standing for each of God's elect. Every one of us were born blind without the capacity to see God. God reached to us in His mercy and redeemed us and brought us in. We didn't do anything on our own. He's sought out by Jesus without a single appeal from Himself. And Jesus dealt with Him the same way He dealt with you, in mercy He came to rescue, and he restored his eyesight. So I come into this next passage as we begin to end this. 
Verse 8, and I ask myself this. When something like this is happening, who's watching? Who's watching you? Read verse 8 with me. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the one. When God takes control of your life, church, other people around you see it. Other people notice the change. You are a witness to the power of God's activity in your life. And whether you know it or not, other people are watching you. So Gary's standing in line talking to this lady who needs her copay paid for. Who do you think's watching him? The pharmacist? How many times that day do you think that story was repeated to the employees in the store? Do you think that's something that happens every day at the Rite Aid Pharmacy? No way. That story's told over and over and over again. You never know who's watching you. Now these individuals, they're talking as though the, the beggar's absent, as though he's in the third person. He looks like him. I don't know. Is it really him? He looks like the beggar that used to hang out here. Hey, it's me! Come on, stop talking about me as though I'm not here. I am the one. I'm the one. They're standing right there in front of them and they're completely at a loss to explain. They don't know that Jesus has just entered his world. They're not aware of it. The individual is still the same person, but a new element has come into his life and he looks different. Verse 10, So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? Verse 11, he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. Very simple and honest. I don't know all the medical details. I don't have any understanding of what he just did. But this is what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. How can you explain that? He's not speculating or philosophizing. He's just giving a straightforward account. And here's what I want you to note. Take nothing else away from this this morning. Note this. This individual said something very specific. His profession is first and foremost, it's the work of Jesus. I didn't do it. It's the work of Christ. It's what Jesus has done. If Gary had gone to the pharmacy and just said to them, you know, we have a humanitarian fund and we'd like to distribute some money to you. That's okay. That's a humanitarian thing to do. But to stand in line and say, because of Jesus Christ and the work he's doing through our church, we would like to help you pay for your prescription. That puts it in a whole new realm. And these under individuals standing in front of the temple understood immediately what it meant to associate Jesus with this action. They want to know where is this Jesus because at this point, six months before his crucifixion, Jesus is a wanted man. Go with me to verse 12. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They want to meet this one that's done this. But the man didn't know. Jesus has left the scene at this point and he's left this individual on center stage. And all he can say is, Jesus did it. So here's where we end. What's their reaction? Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And at that point you want to say, dun, dun, dun. 
because the Pharisees are involved now. And he's healed a man on the Sabbath, and he's made clay, and that just sets us up for next week because the conflict that takes place and the dialogue between the individuals in the rest of chapter 9 is stunning. It absolutely is beautiful. The greatest miracle, I will tell you, that happened in this healing was not the opening of this individual's eyes, but the fact that God, your Maker and Redeemer, brought him into a new life. You're going to see him proclaim the name of Jesus himself next week. And it cost him everything. Everything socially. I want to leave you with three things this morning to ponder as you go out. First one is this. God has a purpose when he trusts you with a significant suffering. The significant things he brings into your life are not random. God is in control We have to wait and see what he's going to do with it. Second thing, who's watching you this week? Who's watching your activities? People who know that you belong to Jesus. Number three, how can God be made more known through your activities? Fana ru. How can you be a fan of God, exalting him so that the world looks and says, Wow, I should pay more attention. How can you be a fanaru of God? So those three things I leave you with this morning. Michael's going to leave us with one last worship song, so I'm going to invite you to stand, and I'm going to pray with you, and then we're going to have this last song to close. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, your church stands before you this morning having just heard your word. We take very seriously the things that you have taught us through the work of your Holy Spirit. So God, I ask for our church, for the individuals who might be visiting this morning, for anybody who's within the sound of my voice listening to this on the recordings on iTunes, God, I ask that you would use this teaching to expand your kingdom. As we evaluate how we are making you known, as we evaluate how we are a light to the world, God, cause your spirit to be at work Cause us to look for ways that we can be greater representatives of you. Empower your church, Father, to be bold on your behalf. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, our soon-coming King. Amen.